So, Mike, in our last episode, you shared a theory about ice cream vans and drugs. And boy, you really stumbled onto something. (laughs) It sure seems that way, doesn't it? In fact, today's topic is the single most requested article in the history of Ungeniused. So without further delay, let's talk about the Glasgow Ice Cream Wars. The Ice Cream Wars were a turf war in the east end of Glasgow in the 1980s, back when we were just wee little children, Mike. Mm -hmm. Or really before, probably before we were wee children. Anyways, between rival criminal organizations selling drugs and stolen goods from, you guessed it, ice cream vans. Maybe you were subconsciously thinking about this when you shared your theory. I don't know. I, I feel like I'd never heard of it before. Um, I also did want to mention I'm really proud of you for saying for trying to say Glasgow instead of Glasgow, as most Americans do. So I'm very proud of you. Thank you. I do what I can. Before all of this, I would have said that it was improbable that cartels would use ice cream vans as fronts for selling drugs. I and mean, we talked about it last time. They're very conspicuous. They have bells and music. Everyone knows when they're coming. But as it turns out, I could not have been more wrong. In fact, in the 80s, several different ice cream vendors also sold drugs along their routes right out of the van. As you may imagine, this led to some friction between the vendors. (laughs) Uh, We shouldn't be laughing. This is terrible. Yes. Often this took the form of intimidation. Vendors would raid each other's goods. Uh, They would fire shotguns into vans when they found them parked on the street, break the windows, and much more. Mm. On April 16th, 1984 is where things took a turn. Andrew Doyle was an 18-year-old who had resisted distributing drugs on his route, a decision that was less than popular for the cartel who hired him. In fact, his resistance had already led to him being shot while in his van by an unidentified person. Oof, that's terrible. The group, though, after he made a recovery, wanted to push him harder than this to really force him to start distributing uh, illegal goods on his routes. So they planned another intimidation technique, and things turned deadly. Being just 18, Andrew Doyle lived at home with his father and several siblings, including his sister and nephew who were visiting. At 2 a.m., the landing outside of the family's top-floor apartment was doused in petrol and set on fire. This resulting blaze killed six people in the flat. The public outrage was sizable after news of the murders broke out the next morning. Several arrests were made and six people were ultimately charged. Four were tried and convicted of various crimes, while two were sentenced to life in prison for the murders themselves. The names of these two men were Thomas T.C. Campbell and Joe Steele. Campbell was already separately convicted in the earlier shotgun attack that wounded Andrew and sentenced to serve an additional 10 years in prison for that crime. Now, this kicked off a two-decade legal battle waged by the two men. And to understand this, we need to talk a little bit about the evidence used to condemn them. The government's star witness was a man named William Love. He stated that he had overheard Campbell, Steele, and others in a bar discussing how they would teach Doyle a lesson by setting fire to his house. The second piece of evidence was a recorded police statement made by Campbell in which he said, quote, only wanted the van shot up, uh, referring to that earlier incident, and that the fire was only supposed to be a scare tactic, but unfortunately went too far. Lastly, the police said that a photocopied street map of Glasgow on which the Doyle house was marked with an X was found in the Campbell's flat. I, I think that that is like the most 
cartoony level of evidence <laughs> I have ever heard. Why? I don't know why they felt the requirement to mark it that way. It's very strange. Big old X right over it. Yeah, very weird. The government used this evidence in conjunction with Campbell's history of violence that had already cost him several years in prison before he entered the ice cream van business. The government also argued that Steele was a hired sidekick to help with the dirty work in Campbell's planned campaign of violence. During the case, Campbell reportedly stated the witness testimony provided by William Love was false and that Love would have said anything to the cops to keep his freedom. Campbell claimed that the statement about shooting the van had been faked and the map planted at his apartment by investigators eager to close a case that had the public so worked up. Both he and Steele gave alibis for the time of the fire, but they were not able to be confirmed, and the two went to jail. But more on that in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Warby Parker. Warby Parker was founded by four friends who believe that your glasses shouldn't cost more than your iPhone. They cut out the middleman so they can sell directly to you in store and online. This means that Warby Parker are able to provide high quality, good looking prescription glasses at a much fairer price. And Warby Parker make it so easy with their free home try on program. You order five pairs of glasses and try them on for five days with no obligation to buy. Shipping is free and they include a prepaid return shipping label as well. So you ship them back, pick your favorite pair they'll even call your doctor if you're not sure of what your prescription is and warby parker glasses start at just 95 dollars, including prescription lenses that all have anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings and not only that but for every pair you buy a pair of glasses is distributed to someone in need steven tell me something that you loved about your home trying experience i love that i could try multiple pairs at home so i could see them you know clothes i normally wear in a mirror have my spouse vote on them have her mm-hmm. have her insight because you just go to the the you know the eye doctor you're by yourself most of the time you're kind of at least me making a judgment alone which is never good when it comes to fashion so Warby parker makes that a family affair and that was good for me listeners of this show can go to warbyparker.com slash ingenious and order a free home try on kit today they've made it even easier actually to have friends and family help you decide because they've built a home try on companion app which lets you create a quick video of you wearing all of your frames so your family and friends can help you choose and if you have an iphone 10 you can use their brand new find your fit feature where they use the true depth camera in the iphone to map and measure your face to recommend the best frames for you it's time to upgrade your glasses experience go to warbyparker.com slash ungenius to order your free home try on today thank you so much to warby parker for their support of this show so several years after their convictions Steele and campbell tried to have them overturned but failed to do so in 1989 Several years later, in 1992, two journalists, Douglas Skelton and Lisa Brownlee, wrote a book, Frightener, about the conflicts and the trial. They interviewed Love for the book, who stated, and then later signed affidavits attesting that he had lied under oath. Love said that he had been pressured by the police to help make sure Campbell was found guilty, as they believed he had been responsible but were unsure of a conviction at the time. Both Campbell and Steele engaged in campaigns of protest to attempt to publicize their cases after this came out. Steele escaped from prison several times to make high-profile demonstrations, including a rooftop protest and supergluing himself to the railings at Buckingham Palace. Campbell never escaped but went on hunger strikes in prison, refused to cut his hair, and eventually made a documentary while behind bars. The Secretary of State for Scotland referred the case to the appeals court, granting Campbell and Steele freedom pending its outcome. That appeal took place in 1998, but failed when three appeal judges could not conclude that the recent love news was enough to overthrow the original trial completely. 
So with the pair back in jail, the case was taken up by the then newly created Scottish Criminal Cases Review Commission. It petitioned the Crown for paperwork related to the case and eventually got it. The commission decided that the case should be referred back to the appeal court, and the men were given interim freedom a second time in November 2001. Three years later, in 2004, the appeals court squashed the men's convictions because of what they stated was to be a significant misdirection of the jury by the judge at the original trial. The new evidence, which was not contradicted by the Crown, was from Brian Clifford, a prof a professor of cognitive psychology, who testified that the recollection of Campbell's statement by the four police officers at the time of the original trial was a little bit too exact. Clifford had performed studies where he tested people in Scotland and England on their ability to recall things that they had just heard. His results were that people only recalled between 30 and 40% of the actual words that they heard, and that the highest score obtained by anyone trying to recall what Campbell was supposed to have said was 17 words out of the 20 used. In short, this pointed to Campbell's insistence that the statement the police said he had made was indeed fake. The original trial judge, Lord Kincraig, who had told Campbell and Steele in court at the original trial that he regarded them as vicious and dangerous men, who at that point was in his 80s and having been retired for 18 years, spoke out against the ruling of the appeal court days afterwards, stating that he could not accept there was a conspiracy among the police. After having his freedom secured, Campbell called for a fresh investigation of the murder of the Doyle family, accusing Tam McGraw both of the original murders and of instigating a campaign over 20 years to ensure that Campbell remained in jail and was silenced, including, what the man said, were repeated attempts on his life. Campbell and McGraw had a lengthy history at this point, including a possible prison stabbing, so the press viewed Campbell's accusation as dubious at best. I could see that. You got somebody with a grudge, and you say they did it as soon as your name is cleared. Mm-hmm. What a story. I, I, had, I had no idea, uh, but now now we do. <laughs> now we do. Neither did I. So thanks to James, Matt, Frank, Andrew, Johnny, and many, many more who sent this topic in this week. If you want to read more about it, there's some links on the website, relay.fm slash ungenius slash 56. You can get in touch with us there via email. Or, of course, you can find us on Twitter. The show is at Ungeniest. You can find Mike there as I-M-Y-K-E. And you can find me as I-S-M-H. And until our next mistrial, Mike, say goodbye. Bye-bye. Adios.